Deadwood Soundwell. Not safe for work. Not safe for work. Not safe for work. Welcome to That's It for Network. I'm Biggs. And I'm Brandon. Well, let's get started. We're just going to go ahead and talk about The Bear. This was a show that was on FX, and it's available on Hulu for streaming in its entirety. It's eight episodes. This is a show that is about working in a kitchen, and I feel seen. (laughs) (laughs) I've never seen a show that actually dove into it this way. Usually when you have a show about a restaurant, it's often focused on the owner, but always on the wait staff. They don't really give a fuck about the kitchen and when it's kitchen staff it's usually some scummy guy in the back who's just there to deliver like horrible dialogue they're always like the lecherous person or something like that they're not really interested in it and i think part of that comes from honestly like la culture like i think a lot of people who are actors or writers get gigs as caterers or waiters and so they have that experience but they really don't have the experience of the kitchen or more to the point they go to restaurants and they've never worked in one. (laughs) This is often the case in comedies because it's often people from Harvard that get comedies. People hire people who have the same background and so you have a lot of people who are producing comedies who are from Harvard, like have that pedigree. Tina Fey, for example. Tina Fey has no fucking idea what it's like to work in a kitchen (laughs) because she was born rich. She's a rich person and we like to try and forget it but it shows in a lot of the stuff she does heard Amy Poehler playing sisters and they go back to their home and their rooms are in pristine condition because their parents left it that way which doesn't happen for most people like most people don't even have a house but if they do have a house they're rearranging that shit you know what I mean yeah they don't have enough money to like keep a room in this kind of condition and just like shut the door and not worry about it you know like that's just not how the world works so I did not look into the background of the showrunner but I would be shocked if he did not have some time working in a kitchen because it is spot on. They spend a lot of time showing what it's like when there's a rush, for example, like the first episode and I think the seventh episode in particular. uh, The first episode, there's a rush and that's where the entire show lives. And people are super high stressed and they film it in a way where it shows like everybody's doing the job and they're doing it very quick and there's all these like arguments in the kitchen, but people are just just trying to get through their workday and they're doing it in a very realistic way. They have the language of a kitchen down. When somebody needs help, they yell hands and it's usually pretty impatiently. When people are going around a corner, they're yelling corner. You know, when they're behind somebody, they're yelling behind. You're saying knife when you have a knife in your hand, like things like that. It's all this basic stuff that like any kitchen you work in, all of this stuff happens all the time. And it's funny because I've talked with a couple of people who watch the show who've never worked in a kitchen and they've like caught on to the language of it but I don't think they realize like no this is how people talk in kitchens like this isn't just for this TV show like this is how it actually is and they have problems in the show where I guess the actor was on uh what was that show with like William H. Macy uh, Shameless yeah Shameless I guess he was on that show so that's kind of his calling card a guy named Jeremy Allen White but he is playing a guy who went to culinary school and went to be the best chef that he could be his brother was also a chef played by john bernthal in some flashbacks we don't actually get to see him too much in the show because he's dead they grew up wanting to be cooks and apparently his parents ran this restaurant and so his brother took it over cut off from him his brother had a really bad drug addiction but he was also really well liked by a lot of people He comes in and takes over this kitchen and there's a culture around it. They don't really want to change the way that they do stuff. And he brings in a sous chef who also worked at this really fine kitchen. And so he brought her in because he wants to make changes with the place. And she's not totally down with the changes that he's going to make because it's very stressful the way that it's set up in these fancier kitchens. But he wants to do it because he wants it done his way and he thinks he can make the restaurant a lot better. He's also dealing with money problems. His brother took out a loan from the mob 
that for about 300 grand and finds out that he's in this massive amount of debt and has to pay it off, which causes all kinds of problems. But I think that the main problem that you see, which is going throughout the show, is that he's trying to change the culture of the kitchen. And you have people that are just completely resistant to it. We see all the types of people that would be in a kitchen. There's one guy who is really, really into making this super fine donut that he had one time. And so he's trying to figure it out. So he'll kind of like drift while he's at work and he'll be focusing on this thing that's not the most important thing. And they're like, dude, we need to get the bread out like it needs to be ready by this time. You constantly see stuff where somebody will be nagging somebody else and they'll tell them to fuck off and then they'll accidentally burn something. And then so they have to like make it up at the last second. It might sound a bit like a reality show the way I'm describing it, but it's not. It is a drama. And they spend a lot of time in the first couple of episodes laying a baseline out for what it's like working in a kitchen so that they can can then focus a little bit more on the interpersonal drama, but it's always interspersed in what's going on in the kitchen. It's just really, really good. And I think a lot of TV shows are good when they dive into the minutia of a thing, you know, like when they find a very specific thing and they just really dive in and try and figure it out and explore it. And that's really what this show does. And we slowly see a lot of the people in the kitchen starting to buy in. He's got a cousin that works there who wants to keep everything exactly as it was. They serve spaghetti and sandwiches. And that's not what this guy wants to do. He wants to make really good meals. He's just fighting him every step of the way. This is the kind of guy, and I'm sure you know this because you used to work in a restaurant before, but he'll be in a corner and somebody won't say corner and he'll see him, but he will intentionally bump into them very hard because he's a big guy and say, you didn't say corner and things like that. You know what I mean? Like that that super aggro guy, which you see in every fucking kitchen. (laughs) The main character, once again, like he has fucking like sleeves on both of his arms with all these tattoos. It's exactly the type of guy I know from Kitchen. You wouldn't be up front kind of looking like that in most cases, but it's perfectly fine in the back. You know what I mean? You know, you see piercings, tattoos. It's just got a really good cast. Like Abby Elliott is in it playing the main character's sister. And so she's trying to help him grapple with his brother's death because it picks up two weeks after he's taken over his brother's restaurant. He's finally got the feel for like how things run and he's starting to try and change things. And I've been in that kind of transition before when it's a family restaurant and somebody else takes over. And man, it is not fun. (laughs) It is not fun at all. It is very stressful. And we see that play playing out we see a bunch of characters when they're having meaningful conversations they're outside having a cigarette on the curb you know like it's it's exactly like it would be at a restaurant when they're eating it's after the rush is over and they're all sitting together and they're all super exhausted and they're sitting there like at a table kind of eating and having a little bit of conversation but you can tell a lot of them just don't even want to move or like speak or anything like it feels exactly right And so I think that when you add in the dramatic elements, it makes for a really fucking good show. I was saying the offer was the best show I'd seen of the year. And that was true. The bear just trumped it, man. It's really good. Carl suggested this to me last week and I watched the first episode immediately. Uh, had some things to do, some recording and stuff. And then the next day I just knocked out the other seven because it's pretty watchable. You know, it's like, I think like 42 minute episodes, eight of them. I think the last one's a little bit longer, but it's not super bloated or anything. It's just like an hour, you know, it's a very easy watch to get into. You can watch it in one or two sittings piece of cake you will get drawn in like oliver platt comes in he's like the mob boss and uh kind of impressed with oliver platt i forget sometimes that he can be a really good actor because he had a period there where he was always playing dumpy guys but in this one he's playing a guy with a little bit of intimidation you know like he's playing it like he loves them and he's got this big connection and known him for a long time but also you realize this is not a guy to be fucked with like this is not somebody you want to get upset joel McHale shows up for a little part of it so he is the chef for our main character and joel McHale is the most toxic abusive fuck they introduce him when they're showing the style of restaurant that he's going to and so The way that they have it, they'll have like a first in charge, second in charge, and they will like check up on everybody and make sure that they're doing their stuff and also help out things. It's just like a a system, basically. Yeah. 
but Joel McHale will sit there and you have the main character is like trying to make some kind of dish and make it really good. And he's calling him a stupid fuck and like insulting his tattoos and going on and on the entire time, just like saying all this awful shit to him in his ear while he's working, basically daring him to fuck up. I've known that guy. (laughs) That guy exists in most kitchens, I think. It really fucking nails it. It's just so good. So I would check out that one for sure. Let's talk about Ms. Marvel. You want to take the lead on this? They just finished up the run, was it last week? Had their last episode. Yeah, I mean, it it will literally be six days by the time this drops. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of changed tone over the course of the show. It went from the first episode where there was a lot of real cartoony stuff happening, literally like animations in the backgrounds and that. And a lot of that went away until the last episode, like when they're holed up in the school, they brought a little of that back. So you can kind of see the change of Kamala going from just this young girl into a superhero putting away a lot of these things, but still have this ideals in her head. The thing I really got out of that show was seeing a completely foreign culture to me. Yeah. Pakistani immigrant to the United States, you know, hearing all the, the stories of partition. I mean, it's stuff I've read about in history books, but it's like a paragraph in most probably white textbooks yeah surprise surprise is not something that colonialist countries tend to focus on all that much right (laughs) yeah it doesn't make us look good specifically great britain but i mean we're all a part of that really when you really think about where we came from you know united states is very similar to india except had 150 more years of british rule before that right and was it that they started in india and then had to move to pakistan was that what happened so it was all originally india which was all under British rule. I just meant for the show. And (laughs) yeah, but I mean, it's all explained in the show. Right. Carved out two places in India, which would be become Pakistan and Bangladesh. Basically all of the Muslims in the West half of India were forced into Pakistan. All the people in the East half of India, the Muslim people were forced into Bangladesh. Right. I wasn't super thrilled with the show. If I'm being honest, I didn't want to come in on here and flame this show, you know, for a multitude of reasons. But I just want to be honest about how I felt about it. I had suspicions watching the trailer that this show would not be made for me. And I was right. Yeah, <laughs> like the first, definitely. The first episode definitely paid that off for me. The second episode I thought was better. But I felt like the second episode, the third episode, the fourth episode were just a fucking slog for me. Yeah, they were. I was interested when they would spend some time talking about the traditions. And I thought the stuff with the family was really good. I thought that the mother was a good three-dimensional character in a way that we have not really seen in the MCU. They're not great about having mother characters in Marvel. Like, we've had some father characters. We have really not had very much in the mother department. And I thought they handled that very deftly. I thought the brother and the father were fun. And uh, the brother is quite a bit different than he is in the comics. Not that this is a bad thing, but he's very fundamentalist in the comics. And I think they tried to hint at it a tiny bit in this, but they really didn't focus on it too much. Whereas, like, in the comics... It's very focused on, you know, like he he is the one who's constantly making Kamala feel bad about a lot of things because she doesn't go hardcore into the traditions, whereas he does. And so I like that they downplayed that a bit because I feel like that wouldn't really work with the show. So the family things were good. I liked it whenever they were at the mosque. I thought that stuff really worked in particular when you have damage control raiding them. And they're just like, here we go again kind of thing. And But they're also not sweating it because they're used to it because they're constantly raided, which is true. Like, moss are under constant surveillance in this country. Like, that's been a story for a long time. At the very least, 21 years, I suspect, for a lot longer than that. Oh, I'm sure it's way before 9-11. But it's been hardcore since the Bush administration, for sure. And... While I thought that stuff worked, a lot of the Kamala stuff just fell apart for me, if I'm being honest. Like, anytime she was in a superhero battle, I just felt myself check out. I guess I understand why they gave her the power she did, but I also found them to be 
glittery and just not interesting, I guess. And a part of it is like the comic book. Her powers aren't super great in that either. Like she basically has Mr. Fantastic powers. Like she can blow up, she can stretch. And I guess eventually, although I didn't read any of the comics, she can start to look like other people. And I I don't understand why they went this way. Like it might be because they've got Reed Richards coming and it's a similar power set. But part of me is like, just own it. You know what I mean? Like just own what your character is. And I don't care about the cosmic part of it so much. It's just, I don't know, man. Like she's supposed to be this imaginative person and she puts up shields. They traded a Reed Richards power for a Sue Richards power, you know? And they're like, okay, you can put these platforms and run around in the sky. She can't do that in the comics. And I don't really understand why you would spend the time to do it when it didn't really look that great and i mean am i missing something is there anything else she does with her power i guess she like stretches her arms once or twice yeah she in the last episode i think yeah she actually could like grow and then she could also make her arms really strong and large yeah she said embiggen which is something she says all the time in the comics but part of me is like if you could do that the whole time why didn't you just do that Like, that's kind of the problem I have with this. Like, it didn't bother me as much early on, but as it went on, it did bother me because I feel like you're not totally paying service to the character. That's just kind of nitpicking. But the truth is, I felt like the story wasn't interesting. Like, this whole thing with the djinn who aren't djinn, I just could not care less about it, honestly. And unfortunately, they show up in the second episode and they basically take it over and... I don't know, man. Like, the bad guy thing was just not very much fun for me because the mother was, like, over-the-top awful. Not her mother, but the mother the, of, of the people. The, the gin. Yeah. And then when she decides to do the right thing, it's like, why? Because your character has, like, not gave a shit this entire time, so suddenly when you're on the precipice of it, you care? Like, that didn't make sense to me, honestly. Like, I know why Kamala's trying to stop it, but she's told her this multiple times, and she didn't listen until she was actually right there on the precipice. So I just thought that was bad writing. I don't know why it stood out to me so much, but it did. The last episode, I really didn't like the whole kevin McAllister of it the tennis ball shooting at what which i'm watching that and i'm seeing like armed people with fucking rifles and they're getting hit by tennis balls and they're not like i'm not gonna blow a hole in this guy's chest not that i need that in a marvel thing but it's also like don't fucking put militaristic police force in there with guns if they're not going to use them somewhat you know what i mean yeah like why do you like blowing holes in walls and stuff and it was like I know they had a scene earlier where they're like, what weapons do you have? They're non-lethal. Okay, good. But then they're like shooting like huge chunks out of concrete walls. Yeah. And then like, you know, if the person got hit with that, they're done. It's like either be a Marvel thing where you're unrealistic about that from the start Mm. or just don't put that in. Like, you know what I mean? I I don't know, man. Like a lot of this just fell apart for me. I I don't know where the Department of Damage Control all of a sudden came about. Uh, Spider-Man. Did they have, (laughs) was that DODC? The very beginning. Uh, Michael Keaton loses his job because of the DODC. And then so that's when he decides to go into business for himself, right? And start stealing stuff. And then the guy who's in charge of the Department of Damage Control is in the newest Spider-Man movie as well because he's the one who arraigns Peter Parker. We've seen them twice, both in Spider-Man movies. If I'm being honest, dude, completely uninteresting to me, like in the comics or in the show. (laughs) Like, I don't care. So now I, I do remember the yeah. Spider-Man Homecoming. 29 movies, what, seven shows now? Something like that. It's a lot to keep up with, for sure, <laughs> in your head canon. They have the lady from the Orange is the New Black, who I really like. And I guess I, I didn't like that everybody else was three-dimensional and she was, like, one-dimensional, you know? Her boss has always been one-dimensional in the two times we've seen him in Spider-Man movies before. I don't know why they didn't just let him fall on the grenade, but instead they were like, nope, we're gonna put her out there because she's really good at looking annoyed and aggro you know because she was like the warden and orange is the new black so that's kind of her calling card and it was kind of a bummer to me that they didn't give her a realization moment i guess 
because this is the kind of show that does things like that. You know what I mean? So I don't know. There's a lot that didn't work for me. One thing that did work was that fifth episode. Oh, the where they're in Karachi or supposedly Karachi in Pakistan. Yeah. And the whole thing following her great grandmother, I yes. thought was very good storytelling. Like, I thought it was really well done, and we don't see any kind of real power that she has. But then it falls apart a tiny bit at the end of the episode when Kamala comes in and then just starts using her powers, you know. And I guess, I don't know, man. I, I don't know why it doesn't hit me right. Like, I still want to watch the Marvels. I, I'm still invested in the character of Kamala Khan. Like, I didn't hate her. I just felt like the series wasn't very well done. That whole, like, getting to see something that, is so important to a lot of people in this world, but is just glossed over by white culture, like being the partition in the yeah. late forties. I mean, it's kind of the same, like Watchmen, the first episode with the Tulsa, Oklahoma bombings or the, yes. Yeah. And the massacre that happened there, that stuff just isn't known in white culture. It definitely affects a large portion of people in the United States that and, are not white. And once again, that was the episode I really liked, but it was also dealing with more than the young adult thing, I guess. And it's difficult for Marvel, and I am acknowledging this, because I've been thinking about this a lot with the streaming shows, because I tend to enjoy the streaming shows, but I read just this heaps of criticism because I think everybody expected them to be exactly like the movie. And the math never quite worked out in my head because it's like, okay, they're getting about the budget of a movie, but it's longer than a movie. You yeah. know what I mean? Like this stuff tends to be maybe two movies. So you're talking about it in like half the budget of one of their movie. If you think about it for like scene to scene. So that part of it, I guess my expectations have always been lowered on Disney plus shows, which is why I'm not super sour on them. And at the end of the day, I wasn't angry at any of the episodes when I was watching them. I just kind of wished that there was more episodes like that fifth one, I guess, where it was really well done storytelling because something that Marvel tends to be able to pull off is somehow, making stuff that most people like this one i feel like is so targeted for younger people and for muslim people that like it's gonna leave a lot of people in the dark and as far as the muslim thing goes i'm all about it but as far as the young adult things go i'm like you already liked marvel stuff though you know what i mean <laughs> Like, I guess that's part of it for me is that younger people do like going to Marvel movies. They do like some of the Disney Plus shows, you know? So it's like, it felt like you didn't have to hyper focus on that younger audience, I guess, is more where it comes in for me, you know? And I really liked the Ms. Marvel comic, and I always thought that was very successful at what it was doing. And this just felt like it it missed the mark a little bit. Like it hit the important stuff, which is clearly you could tell they cared about that stuff more than the other stuff, which is great because I think that's more important stuff to portray, but you can't let the other stuff suffer. You know, the character of Kamala Khan, like I liked her community. I kind of don't care about her character in the show. Like I know I'm supposed to because she's the protagonist, but like, I don't know, like they say she's super arty or whatever, but we only see evidence of that a little bit in the first episode. Like she's making a costume, she's doing YouTube videos, right? And then not revisited again until the last episode when she's coming up with the plan on a chalkboard and doing this whole comic booky looking thing on the chalkboard, which I'm like, dude, you get maybe one drawing on that board before you run out of time. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, yeah, they, there's already like... The DODC is completely surrounded the school, like, and then she's coming up with this whole plan, drawing all these, like, fancy artwork out, yeah. To me, that's, like, what I didn't like about this. And it, it was so on display in that last episode. It was like, I'm going to take time to do this, like, super clever cartoony thing on the chalkboard with the plan, and I'm going to tell you the plan, but it's not actually going to be the plan. It's just going to be, like, something that you throw out for the audience so that they can actually see the plan, which I'm like... Like, just cut out that scene. You already have an extra long episode. Like, let's not go into the planning chalkboard thing. I don't like the tennis balls being flung at people. That's just, like, such a fucking trope. Okay, this is another thing. <laughs> so, the thing I complimented Ms. Marvel the most about 
when we talked about this at the beginning of the show was that she did that YouTube videos. You're looking at it, and I was like, the most realistic thing is it's like two, three views on the thing. And I love <laughs> that they were like realistic about that. But she has this friend who somehow has thousands of followers in New Jersey. Because it has to be New Jersey, right? That's how everybody like gathers around the thing. Yeah. Is because she's like an influencer or whatever. And I'm like, this is just not fucking realistic at all. Like, this is not how this shit works. Like, I'm on Instagram, dude, and I'm telling you, like, there's only a handful of people that have that kind of following anyway. None of them are fucking teenagers. Not a single one. It's not like she's a YouTube kid. And, of course, she's going live onto the thing, you know, and, like, everybody's showing up as they see it because it's like, oh, this girl puts it in. How many movies have we seen with that now? I think it's funny because it was like she's on getting on TikTok and doing this video and like we need all you people to show up to the school and help out and i'm like dude nobody over 18 has tiktok (laughs) (laughs) yeah no shit man yeah you're seeing all these older people in the crowd and it's like no there's there's no way kamala's dad has tiktok why are people sharing this with me i why do you have tiktok dude Yeah, it's like, and what really sucks about that, though, it would not be a criticism normally. It would just pass over me. But because they did a good job in that first episode, because they did a good job of the meme culture when they showed it, like, that was one of the things I really liked was when something happened, there would immediately be all these memes that would show up. And I'm like, yeah, that feels like the internet right there. So it just felt wrong when that happened all of a sudden. And it's like, no, that's not how the internet works. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's kind of like in the Batman when the Riddler has all of these people in the online community and it's like 120 and somehow they're able to like shut down Gotham. And I'm like, man, if you have 120 followers, you're probably not getting engagement from a single one. (laughs) You get one guy that shows up. If you're lucky, probably not, dude. (laughs) Like when you actually get somebody who shows up for a thing, you're probably around at least 5,000 followers. At the least, dude, that's like bare minimum for like getting engaged. I mean, how how many people do we get listening to us every week? And then we put out a poll and we get two. (laughs) That's why I stopped putting up polls. I was just like, it was depressing sometimes. (laughs) And I really appreciate the one or two people who did it for sure. But yeah, that was that was the result was like we never got more than two people. And that's just literally a click one way or another. That is not Getting dressed, driving across town to the school to stand in line to maybe get shot by the government. It's fucking Jersey, man. Like, that is a fucking slog to get there. You know what I mean? Like, that's like toll booths. That's paying for parking, if you can even find parking. You know what I mean? Like, that's a fucking commitment to do that. Unless everybody in your neighborhood just happens to have TikTok and they're watching And they follow this one 18-year-old girl. Yeah, which is creepy. Is she even 18? I don't think she's 18. I mean, I'm sure the actress is like 25, but like, <laughs> I think she's playing like a 17 year old. You know? Right. And uh, so, yeah, that's just fucking creepy yeah, if you, you're following a 17 yeah, year old girl. If you're follow, I don't follow any high school kids, and I have one kid in high school and one just out of high school, and I don't follow any of like. I'll be honest on Instagram. If anybody follows me, I will follow them back as long as they're not selling weed. <laughs> not trying to do an Illuminati thing, not doing Bitcoin. You know what I mean? Like whatever the scam of the moment is, I'm not going to follow that person, but everybody else I just follow. It's a funnel system. Yeah. (laughs) It works like a funnel. Like think of it as like an inverted pyramid. (laughs) So at the end of the day, when I'm looking at Ms. Marvel, I didn't hate it. I just didn't like it all that much. Like, if it was, like, a five-star rating, I'd give it, like, I guess two and a half, three, somewhere around there. Yeah. Probably, like, three-star. Like, a typical Marvel thing where it's, like, I'll watch anything Marvel. Nothing really gets my dander up too much about Marvel. But had to talk about this critically. So, when I look at it critically, I do notice a lot of things. And the bar needs to be a little bit higher for the show. And I was thinking about this with the mutants thing. 
they basically announced that she's a mutant at the end of the show. I think. Like, maybe they're trying to do an inhuman thing, but I don't think that's what it is. I think everybody heard the genetic anomaly thing and immediately equated it they to li- Well, they literally said mutant. Yeah. But Marvel has been kind of cutesy with a lot of this stuff, you know? Like, you had Quicksilver being recasted, you know, in uh, WandaVision. WandaVision, which was fun. I thought that was hilarious because it was playing with expectations going into Phase 4 when they weren't telling you anything about the X-Men, you know? And then we saw Professor X and Doctor Strange, and I really enjoyed that because we did see mutants. And it may not be in the 616, but we know that mutants are out there, and we got to see Professor X, and it's one we've seen before. So, like, we had mutants. So it's very puzzling when they throw this in because I'm like, it's in the spot where it's supposed to have impact, right? But I'm like, okay, so you're saying mutants are coming, but everybody kind of knew that already. If you were going to do an X-Men drop somehow, I think you need more. I want a real X-Men. I think at the very least, you're dropping a name of somebody. At the very least, you know? Or, like, if you see, like, somebody in the background shooting lasers with their eyes, like a Cyclops. Right, but I don't think that's the least. If you're actually seeing an X-Men, that's not the least they but can I, do. That's, that's what I want. Right, right. But I also understand it's a teaser. They're teasing, right? Like, they're teasing you with it. I mean, that's what they're doing. So if you're teasing, at least give me a name. Don't give me, like, talking about the mutant gene because we already know that that's happening. So you have to give something more exciting, you know? And by the way, this has nothing to do with the showrunners of Ms. Marvel. I guarantee this was probably not their choice, really. Like, these things they put on to, like, have momentum carry between the things. This is not exclusive to Ms. Marvel, I gotta say. I'm trying to remember if there's been any teaser at the end of a Disney Plus show I've been excited about. I'm not sure that there has been. WandaVision, it ends with her looking at the book, which we didn't really know what that meant at the time, so it didn't really help us in any regard, you know? Like, she's looking at the Darkhold in a in a place, and we just didn't know what that meant, and that was a teaser. It, it was nothing. Yeah. I can't even remember what they did with Leonard Soul. So, no, I don't remember what they did with Captain Loki. They did Doctor Strange, wasn't it? Wasn't no. It? Which show had the commercial for the end oh, credits maybe. was... The trailer for uh, Doctor Strange. Maybe. Maybe. I'm not sure. They need to do better with the teasers in general. I did think that showing Captain Marvel was a good end for it, so I'm not trying to totally rip on Ms. Marvel here. It's just that moment with the gene. Like, I'm not a big X-Men fan, but I don't know any X-Men fans who are going to get excited at that, at that being said, because everybody's waiting for it, you know? I don't give a fuck for the most part about the X-Men. So I'm not like super excited, but I also recognize that it's a thing that people really care about. But I don't know anybody who's going to be excited the way that they revealed that. It was just a little clumsily handled. For me, X-Men is kind of a mixed bag. Like, because there's been some good X-Men and there's been a lot of bad X-Men. Yeah. I mean, I'm just talking live action TV show or live action movie. I was going to say there's like one live action TV, two. <laughs> there's like Legion and whatever that Brian Singer one was. Yeah, we don't talk about that. Oh, I just did though. <laughs> no, he doesn't I, but just I mean, disappear like, because he acted inappropriately. <laughs> no. Each of the, the major trilogies an all right one, a good one, and then a terrible one. And the first class, they had the. All right, one, a good one, and a terrible one. So, pretty good spectrum there. Okay, so this is a quiz I got for you, Brandon. Okay. This is called Know Your Director. So, this is supposed to be a versus battle, but Carl no-showed. Basically, I'm going to give you a multiple choice, and you have to guess which director, for the most part, is the answer. There's one exception, but we'll get there. Which director lost her virginity in a French brothel when Ernest Hemingway offered to pick up the tab? John Waters, Russ Meyer, Roger Corman, Sergio Leone. I'm going to go Sergio Leone. Sergio Leone, what's your reasoning? I don't know. I don't have a reasoning. (laughs) I feel like John Waters is too on the nose for that. John Waters' sexual preference is probably not female. How do we know it's females in the brothels? This is true. I'm general. (laughs) I'm making a very generalization in my head, but... This is my reason not for John Waters. And I just, I'm feeling Sergio. Okay. Russ Meyer. 
Like a part of Russ Meyer. Do, do you know who Russ Meyer is? No. So he did like taking it off, taking it all off, cheerleaders, like movies like that. Okay. <laughs> it makes sense. The bigger the boobs, the more Russ Meyer was into them. So number two, which director worked on special effects for Escape from New York? Is it Robert Zemeckis, James Cameron, Roland Emmerich, John McTiernan? I feel like this is a Roland Emmerich because I feel like he is very notorious for Doomsday Scenario. So I feel like Escape from New York would be something like definitely like he would be drawn to just from his later work where, you know, he's got like Godzilla tearing up the town. Later work. All of his work is disaster films. All of them. So like working on Escape from New York, I could see that happening. All right, it was good reasoning, and that's why I put it as a fake answer, because it was James Cameron. (laughs) (laughs) got to remember, he ran around with uh, Roger Corman for a while and did a lot of stuff in the background before he became a director. So, Number three, who became the first director to pick up his golden raspberry in person? Paul Verhoeven, Chris Columbus, Gus Van Zandt, M. Night Shyamalan. I don't think it's Verhoeven. I think he's too artsy for that. Like, I know he's known for, like, RoboCop and stuff, but, like... (laughs) Yeah, when you said artsy, I was like, interesting, go on. (laughs) But he is definitely an auteur director. Yes. And that's why I said artsy on that. Gus Van Zandt. So we're talking, like, Goodwill Hunting, Finding Forrester, Last Days. Psycho remake. Too indie film for that. I'm feeling M. Night Shyamalan trying to be in on the joke just to try and get ahead of it. I could see him doing that. Not Chris Columbus, maker of Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. (laughs) I feel like he has no idea, like nobody knows who he is. It was Paul Verhoeven. Yeah, dude. So he picked it up for Showgirls. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Showgirls doesn't deserve to be a Razzie. No, it doesn't. It's aged very well in a way. He was talking about all the shitty things that go backdoor in Hollywood. And that all really, really came out in Me Too. And you look back at Showgirls and kind of reappraise it. And it's like, actually, he was talking about some real shit. Like, it seemed like it was a heightened thing at the time. But no, it was some real shit he was talking about. Yeah. Okay, who directed the Nightmare at 20,000 Feet segment of Twilight Zone the movie? Was it George Miller, John Landis, Joe Dante, or Steven Spielberg? Steven Spielberg, using the idea to make Gremlins, like working with Zemeckis to make Gremlins. Okay, you know Joe Dante directed Gremlins, right? No, I didn't. Do you want to change your answer? (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm sticking with it. Okay, it was George Miller. Director of Mad Max movies and yeah. Happy Feet movies and Babe Pig in the City. <laughs> it's quite the filmography, dude. <laughs> I have got nothing so far. Yeah, nothing. You are 0 for 4 so far, but it's just 4. We got some more coming. Which Weird Al video did Jordan Peele appear in? It's all about the Pentiums, Amish Paradise, Perform This Way, White and Nerdy. The answer is White and Nerdy. Ah, oh, you know this one. Yep. I talked about this on a previous episode of the podcast when I was talking about doing a deep dive on uh, reaction videos, and I was listening to one person who was talking about the white nerdy video, and he definitely like pointed out the Key and Peele being in the in the lowrider. They definitely are. Okay, which director made a short film called "I'm Here," which is based off of the Giving Tree? Robert Rodriguez. Paul Thomas Anderson, Spike Jones, Richard Linklater. What was the first one on that list again? Robert Rodriguez. That is the answer I'm going to go with. I'm sorry, sir. It's Spike Jones. Damn. <laughs> People always think about like Machete and then like, what was the? Spy Kids. And then, but like, yeah, you have spy yeah. kids on the other end of that spectrum. Like, that's why I put it on the list. And yeah. then I had like Paul Thomas Anderson and Richard Linklater just to be like, let's see if you guys go for this. <laughs> <laughs> Although Richard Linklater did do School of Rock. So, true. 
All right, which director played one of Queen Amidala's handmaidens in The Phantom Menace? Is it Mary Heron, Patty Jenkins, Sofia Coppola, Greta Gerwig? Uh, I'm going to go with the Coppola, like, just because there's a lot of copias in Hollywood, and I feel like there's some nepotism going on. It's Sofia Coppola. Yeah, I mean, so the connection my mind made, although I don't know that's what it is for sure, but I'm pretty sure, is that Sofia is daughter to his old roommate, Francis Ford Coppola. So, yeah. Which director has appeared in Metalocalypse, Rick and Morty, and The Simpsons? Is it Rob Reiner, Werner Herzog, Albert Brooks, or John Favreau? Just because I want it to be true, I want Werner Herzog. You are correct, sir. It's Werner <laughs> Herzog. And if you really, really spend time to think about it, he's the only one that makes sense for Metalocalypse. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Just because of his accent. Which director left Industrial Light Magic to direct a commercial for the American Cancer Society that depicted a fetus smoking a cigarette? Is it Michael Bay, Michelle Gondry, Wes Anderson, or David Fincher? You know, if it's a fetus smoking a cigarette, that feels like a Fincher move. That is a Fincher move. <laughs> All right, why does that feel like a Fincher move to you? You're thinking seven. You're thinking. Oh, uh, uh, what's in the box? What's in the box? Like, yeah, that's, that's a good point. Definitely a Fincher. Yeah. If it was exploding, it would be a Michael Bay joint. <laughs> if it was a diorama with a fetus in it, it would have been Wes Anderson. I don't know what Michelle Gondry is. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck he's doing. <laughs> All right. Which director said that someone should shoot Charlton Heston with the 44 Bulldog? Was it John Milius, Stanley Kubrick, Spike Lee, or Lars von Trier? Now, John Milius seems like an obvious answer, but I don't think that's right. I mean, he's just such a gun nut, but <sighs> that feels like a Kubrick saying. Yeah. So I put these together because they're all people that are aggro in their own right. So you <laughs> yeah. can make a case for any of them, like Lars von Trier, you could definitely make a case for. <laughs> and Spike Lee. And Spike Lee is your answer. Sorry. Spike Lee. Yeah. And then he clarified saying he was joking, but I watched the clip and like he was pissed when he said it. So <laughs> I don't know that. It's an interesting joke. All right. So now you, I think you have three right so far. So you're doing better on the back half of the five. You got 60% on that <sighs> five. But so far, let's see, three out of 10, you're batting 30%. But you got 10 more here. You can. That's you can better make than uh, Michael Jordan did in baseball. So, <laughs> yeah, triple A baseball, I would add. <laughs> Which director has had the most marriages? Mickey Rooney, Billy Bob Thornton, James Cameron, or Martin Scorsese? Let's see. I think James Cameron's had three. I'll just give you a hint here. The lowest bar of any of these directors is four. <laughs> Jesus. I'm going to go Billy Bob Thornton on this one. Okay. So in order of failed marriages, <laughs> Martin Scorsese, four marriages, James Cameron, five, Billy Bob Thornton, five, Mickey Rooney, eight. His last one lasted 37 years until he died, but... Dude, you don't get credit for that when your first seven went up in flames. <laughs> the eighth one's a charm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Which director appeared uncredited as a Klansman in The Birth of a Nation? Was it Alfred Hitchcock, John Ford, Howard Hawks, or Frank Capra? This I have no idea. I'm going to go with uh, Frank Capra. John Ford. I was going back and forth. I don't know any of these ones other than Hitchcock. So Howard Hawks did uh, The Thing from Another World. You know Frank Capra, right? No. Uh, he did It's a Wonderful Life. Okay. Uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Things like that. Like, he's famous for having something that often has Jimmy Stewart and is very heartwarming at the end. Like, something where people learn a lesson. John Ford did, like, The Searchers and a whole bunch of westerns and things like that. Oh, that makes sense now. I don't think I have to explain Hitchcock. Yeah. I was just trying to come up with guys who would make sense for the era, who you might recognize their names. Which director was wrongly detained as a bank robber this year? Was it Tyler Perry, S. Craig Zeeler, David O. Russell, or Ryan Coogler? That was Ryan Coogler. 
Did you hear this news? I story? actually knew that news story, and he's rich. <laughs> but he is in Georgia, so that's all it takes, you know. Which director was married to Carl Bernstein, then divorced him, later fictionalized him in a story where she described him as capable of having sex with the Venetian blind, and then revealed to anybody who would listen in speech after speech that Mark felt was deep throat decades before he did? <laughs> is it Nora Ephron, Nancy Myers, Elaine May, or Julie Dash? This I have no idea. I'm going to go with Nora Ephron, but I'm pretty sure it's wrong. No, you're correct. It's Nora Damn. Ephron. Nora Ephron worked for, uh, I think, New York Magazine and like was a very famous columnist for a long time and then worked as a script writer. She wrote When Harry Met Sally before she directed stuff like uh, Sleepless in Seattle. She's done a lot of things, which I think is why See, she's I always, the type of person like, who does a circuit. Seen, right? thought she was younger than... Deep Throat era. No, no, no. And she died 12 years ago, 13 years ago, something like that. Okay. Which director worked at a rock station and interviewed Robert Plant, David Gilmore, Elton John, Bob Geldof, and Carlos Santana? Was it Cameron Crowe, Alejandro Gonzalez Iratu, Oliver Stone, or Mario Van Peebles? I'm pretty sure this is Cameron Crowe. No, Cameron Crowe works for Rolling Stone, did not work as a DJ. Really? Alejandro Gonzalez in a red too. Damn. Yeah. That's cool, though. Yeah, yeah, isn't it? Okay, so let's see here. On this last chunk, you got Efron right, you got Kugler right. <laughs> you got two more. So you're at five. Five of 15. <laughs> I'm staying with my 300. If you nail these last five, you will have 50%, sir. <laughs> Which director owns two houses that are purely dedicated to storing posters, books, and movie memorabilia? Is it Guillermo del Toro, Kevin Smith, M. Night Shyamalan, or Quentin Tarantino? I'm going to go with the guy that actually runs a movie theater. I'm going to go with Quentin Tarantino. It's a really good guess, which is why I put it in as a fake answer. <laughs> it's Guillermo del Toro. Damn. Yeah. Should have went with my gut. Any four of those guys fits the bill, right? It seems like. Okay, which director did not, did not work in porn? Is it <laughs> Toby Hooper, Wes Craven, Lloyd Kaufman, or Orson Welles? God, I hope it's Orson Welles. <laughs> <laughs> Is that your guess? I'm going to go with Orson Welles. Well, unfortunately, Orson Welles came in and directed a scene in porn once. And Damn. this was during his whole famous Frozen Peas era when he was do hawking Frozen Peas on TV. Could not get a movie finished for a long time. Yeah, uh, Lloyd Kaufman worked as a porn director before mm. he started Trauma Team Productions and had no problem doing so. Wes Craven worked in porn in the 70s. Yeah. Yep. So it was Toby Hooper, never worked in porn, <laughs> <laughs> that I'm aware of. <laughs> okay, which director produced the MacGyver reboot? Was it James Wan, J.J. Abrams, Mark Duplass, or Ryan Johnson? Uh, I thought that was Duplass that did that one. I don't think it was Ryan Johnson. And... What was the other two on that list? J.J. Abrams and James Wan. Yeah. I could make a case for James Wan, but I don't think so. I think, I know he got kind of blacklisted after the, the Incredible Hulk. No, 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 no. You're thinking, no. Everything you just said there is wrong. <laughs> to, to parse a Ryan Johnson line. So that was Ang Lee that did yeah, you're right. that did Hulk and uh, uh, James Wan. He wasn't like he just kept making movies yeah. after that. Like he did Life of Pi, won a Best Director uh, Oscar. You're right. Yeah. Okay. So James Wan did like he the did Conjuring Aquaman. movies, Aquaman. Yeah. Yeah. That that's his calling card so far. Insidious. Yeah. Where were you going? Did you say Duplass? Duplass. Okay. Sorry, it was James Wan. <laughs> All of these guys worked on TV at some point as well, producing, so. Okay, who wanted to scream Bambi at a museum exhibit of their most important influences, but Disney said no? Is it David Lynch, George Romero, 
Lars von Trier, or David Cronenberg? So yeah, it's going to be fucked up no matter who the answer is. <laughs> I'm going to go with Cronenberg. You are correct. It's David Cronenberg. <laughs> I think you threw that one just to piss me off. <laughs> I did not. I, I had it in there because I thought Carl was going to be sitting and I thought he might be staring at his phone for a minute. So I figured this would like jar him back out. <laughs> All right. Which director had a minor acting role in The Silence of the Lambs, The Godfather Part 2, and Apollo 13? Is it Ron Howard, Roger Corman, Peter Weir, or Mike Nichols? I feel like I'm pretty sure this is Roger Corman. You are correct. It's Roger Corman. Those are some good movies, dude. This was about the time he got his honorary Oscar. Yeah, I guess that would have been, huh? So you got, according to my count, four right out of 20? I thought it was seven. I stand corrected. You want to hear the tiebreaker question in case you've been going against Carl? You guys tied? Yeah. Okay. Manuel de Oliveira was the oldest man to direct a feature film. How old was he when he set the record? The current record, I should say. 97. 104. Damn. Yeah, so that would have been a whoever got the closest. He died at 106, literally while he was making a short film. God. Isn't that crazy? We had some more, but we're just going to shunt it off to next week, dude, because that's an episode. So yeah, we'll see you guys next week. Take it easy. Please rate and review our show. Sign up for an Anchor account. You can leave voice messages through a link in the description of the podcast, or you can answer our poll questions. Reach out to us through Instagram at redwood underscore sound underscore labs or Facebook at facebook.com slash redwood sound labs. Email us at notsafernetwork at gmail.com. Not Safe for Network was created and hosted by Carl Borneman, Brandon Beardsley, and Alex Small. Produced by Aaron Donaldson and Alex Small. Zach and Matt are two veteran horror movie enthusiasts discussing their favorite and not-so-favorite horror films. Scary movie fans beware, or listen to Watch No Evil. News, reviews, and deep dives of the television series and film franchises you love. Take a tour of the popular media world with Biggs and Brandon on Not Safe for Network. Charles is a Purple Heart recipient and cinematographer. Aaron is a professor and critical cultural scholar. Together, they explore the narrative, affective, and production politics of war cinema on The Real War Project. That's R-E-E-L, War Project. You can find all of these shows wherever you find your podcasts, you can find all of these shows on Redwood Sound Labs.